So good evening all, it's Tavara Krasniansky here from Azayad. And I'm really excited about tonight's topic. We get this question often, am I ready, to, am I ready for marriage? And tonight we're gonna to be just talking to uh, Dr. Debbie Ackerman about this very important question. Uh, and I'm really excited to have uh, Rachel McLaughlin from MASK, who does a lot of work for the firm community, 25 years or so for the firm community in mental health. And Rachel is going to introduce Dr. Debbie Ackerman. I'm gonna jump right into the topic of Am I ready for marriage? So, Rahama. Thank you, Devora, uh, for having us on tonight. Uh, my name is Rahama Bistritsky Klatman. I'm the founder of Mask. I started Mask 25 years ago. February will be 25 years. Hashem. We offer all referrals for all mental health issues, including addictions, any age any stage, uh, you can feel free to call our helpline 718-758-0400. I have a radio show Thursday night called Family Matters, where we interview different therapists, parents, community activists on all family matters. Feel free to go on to our website, massparents.org, so you can hear all the previous shows and uh, find out more information about our organization. It is a privilege and honor to have on with us Dr. Debbie Ackerman, who is a licensed clinical social worker with many years of experience in private practice and in teaching. Dr. Ackerman specializes in uh, trauma, marriage, family work, and addiction and recovery. Dr. Ackman worked over 10 years actually in addiction, both in clinical and in administrative. And Dr. Ackman works with families. She runs our Monday night, she facilitates our Monday night's parent support group, which is minimum over 25 families. So every Monday night, uh, everything is confidential and it anybody wants to get in touch with Dr. Ackman or Mass, call us 718, both in clinical and in administrative. And Dr. Ackman works with families. She runs our Monday night, she facilitates our Monday night's parent support group, which is minimum over 25 families. So every Monday night, uh, everything is confidential. And it anybody wants to get in touch with Dr. Ackman or Mass, call us 718-758-0400. And thank you once again, Deborah, for having us. Thank you, Rahama. So, uh, De Debbie, let's just jump right into the topic of am I ready for marriage? Okay. All right. So, uh, first of all, thank you very kindly to Rahama and to Deborah. It is uh, truly a wonderful thing to be able to be here, and I appreciate it. Uh, this is a really all important topic in our community. Uh, marriage is uh, one of the fundamental tenets of, of what our religion and our culture is based on. Uh, people talk about it from the time uh, children are not even born. And then when they're born and, and there's always a lot of conversation and a lot of expectation and a lot of pressure. And so the topic of when I'm ready or how am I ready uh, is really something that we should discuss. I kind of thought about this uh, since the topic came up. And I actually asked uh, different people, kind of like a random sampling of what they thought the most important quality that you needed uh, to be able to, to be married. And so not to put anybody on the spot because I definitely wanna be asked back. Devora, did you ever kind of think of maybe a one word as to what you think the most important quality is that you need to know if you're ready to get married? Oh, we have, we have uh, several one words uh, that we, but some, for some people they want to ask, they want to know if they're mature enough or if they're financially stable enough or, you know, thing, you know things like that. So, okay. so those are, are that, that was a good way to not answer the question. That was good. I like that. Okay. <laughs> to, to be mature enough and to be financially stable enough. Uh, when people get married, no matter what stage of life that they uh, get married, things are going to happen. We don't control many times our circumstances. And therefore, I think that what we need to talk about is what is the, the mental attitude that you have as you go into that marriage? And in all the people that are kind of randomly surveyed, because I thought this was really a fascinating topic, two answers really kind of came 
together. Answer one was to just be as shalem within yourself as you can be, to be as happy with you, to be as comfortable where you are, not that you're a finished product, but to be as comfortable as you are in your stage of life, that you are satisfied within yourself. And then the second thing that is an offshoot, of course, of that is to want to be a giver. We need to give. Marriage is relational. It's two people. That's what separates it out from other institutions. It's a commitment that you make. And I looked up uh, one of my favorite theorists in marriage, Robert Sternberg, who has what we call the triangular theory of love. And he breaks marriage down into three components, into working together or the friendship, into the intimacy part of marriage and into the commitment. And what he feels is that you need all three of those parts for marriage. But he says something really interesting and I'm gonna kind of bring this out and then we'll go to the questions, more questions. What he says is that marriages go through different permutations of that triangle at different points of their marriage. Obviously the ideal maybe is to have all three components working together at the same time, the passion, the commitment and the friendship or the work environment but that doesn't always happen. Sometimes you can just have commitment. Sometimes you can just have friendship or working. Sometimes you can just be kind of that love feeling that keeps that marriage going. Or you can have passion and love or commitment and friendship. And so he takes those three components and breaks them down into different combination and kind of says a marriage, a normal, everybody wants to be normal. A normal marriage is gonna go through those different permutations over the life cycle of a marriage. And I actually very much like that theory because it is a complex relationship, but it doesn't have to be a hard relationship. Does that make sense? I hope it does. Definitely. Yes. Okay. All right. Would you like to start with some? Yeah, so some questions came in in advance and I'd like to tap onto those. And then if anyone has any questions, you can definitely send it to us in the chat. Uh, privately, if you'd like, or to everyone, or you can also use the anonymous question uh, that we have on the Adeyad website. So as far as, let's talk about first, like, uh, what, let's do just age. Uh, how does that consider it into it at all? Okay. Uh, or like finishing seminary or finishing yeshiva or finishing. Okay. So age is, an, is a number. And we do know, especially in therapy, that we do work with developmental milestones and how people develop. I will tell you that I think that your average, or, or you know, if you're looking at a bell curve, your average 18-year-old today is probably at a different level of maturity than one that was maybe 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. Uh, the brain, because of all the outside influences that we have, and as a social worker, my theoretical orientation is person and environment, how the environmental press helps shape us and our, our behaviors and our thoughts and our feelings. And I really think it's very difficult today for young people. There's a lot of pressure on them, a lot of outside pressures. So 18 today, I think is very different than what 18 was um, many years ago. I think many, a lot of that has to do also with the financial pressures that we have and um, the need to, for most people I know, have a two income household in order to make it with children and with rent and housing and kosher food and tuitions and everything. So there really is a consideration for that. With the age, however, goes what I'm talking about. Do you feel that you are a natural giver? Are you prepared and wanting to give to somebody on a consistent basis? Are your expectations reasonable? What are your coping skills? How do you act when the answer is no? How do you act when you can't get what you want? Are you more dependent on outside help for you to manage your daily life? That is not a bad thing. When we go out of our community, right? Children, uh, young adults go to college from 18 to 22. Sometimes they move back home for a year or two, 23, 24. By the time they get their careers established, 25, 26. And then many people in the outside communities think of getting married at that point. Our communities tend to do things a little bit differently that we want our children to get married younger. But it takes a lot of personal introspection to really look at yourself and say, am I ready for that type of responsibility? Do I want that daily responsibility or do I, do I want a little bit more time, a little bit more time for my own brain, for my own development, whether it's on a 
personality level, an educational level, a job level, a preparedness level to take a little more time. And that is perfectly okay. I wanna add that we know science has shown us the human brain does not stop developing till 30, which means we take about a third of our life to actually get to our adult brain. And that doesn't mean, no, you shouldn't think of getting married till 30. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I am saying is that if you choose to marry young and your partner is young and that is okay, you are going to grow up together at least for those first few years of your marriage. And your marriage is going to go through developmental cycles just like you do. Your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, your 80s, your 180s, I'm into long life. So each one of those stages is going to be a part of your marriage. So how does one know, or how can I know uh, if I'm enough of a giver or if I have by enough of, and what is considered like if I may be more of a giver than my brothers were or are, but is still that still enough for a marriage? Or the giving is not just I, I want to make it very clear. The giving isn't you get up at 545 in the morning and start scrubby bubbying and cooking and doing while while the partner does nothing. That that's not what the marriage is about. The marriage is about two people desiring to give to each other and to the union of the marriage. And we, we're not really gonna go into dating styles or things here tonight, but those are kind of the things that you want to find out about your potential partner. Are they generous? Generous of time, generous of spirit, generous in terms of what they have. Uh, three things usually bring in my experience and in my practice couples into therapy. Uh, one is money, and two are usually kind of um, physical or intimate issues and three are children, and all three are connected. And what we say in couples therapy is kind of what goes on in your kitchen and in your living room is gonna directly correlate into what goes on inside your private, uh, private life, because it's all connected. The Torah is the most wonderful psychology guidebook I have ever learned in my life. And there's a wonderful saying in the Torah, which is a play on words, which is how do you tell a man's character and that is bikiso, bikaso, bikoso. It's a play on the, on the root of the word. Bikiso is how a person handles his money. Bikoso is how a person handles his liquor. And bikaso is how does a person handle his anger. I think that is actually a phenomenal guide to understand yourself and the person that you are considering. Whether one has a dollar or $17 million, it is the attitude towards that money that you're looking about. What does somebody do when they're angry? And that is a big red flag. How is the person that you are potentially considering, how do they handle their anger? Because either extreme is going to be problematic. If they shut down and refuse to communicate, that is going to be rather difficult. And if their voice escalates and they're screaming and throwing insults upon insult, that is what we call abusive, as is shutting down. Is the person or are you able to own your mistakes? That goes back to feeling full within yourself. Somebody who climbs up the ladder of self-actualization and understanding who they are has no problem saying, I was wrong. Yeah, you know what? I'm, I'm not perfect. Hashem didn't make me perfect. I am not supposed to be perfect. As somebody who's a big 12-step proponent, I live by the theory progress, not perfection. Am I going to make mistakes every single day. Is that good? It's not good. It's great. Because as the great philosopher Karl Popper said, we should embrace our mistakes like good friends, because that is where you do your learning. How is that person when you make a mistake? How is that person when a dozen eggs, you know, flew off the counter and landed on the floor? How does that person treat people where you are out? Wait staff that the food is late, the parking attendant, something that doesn't go their way. Those are huge indicators for what's gonna happen when a lot of things potentially won't go your way. So let's talk a little bit about how we can recognize ourselves. Sometimes we have our own blind spots, but so how can we do some real self-reflection to see what our, how we deal with those kind of things that you were talking about, anger. Can you talk a little bit to self-reflection? 
I love self-reflection. Uh, the, the mark of any good person in mental health is how well they're able to self-reflect. Um, can you, do you have a specific example, Devorah, that you wanna kind of- So, this? yeah, so some people don't, uh, recognize themselves that they have to work on their anger and some people don't yet admit to themselves that they have an anger issue, just to use the example that you gave about anger. So what are some techniques that someone might do to actually be more uh, self-reflective, more honest with themselves? Okay. Uh, what, the way we do an assessment uh, is kind of like we look at a person's life in its sum total, not just in one component. So if somebody, let's say, for example, has an issue with anger and you kind of start to ask questions or, or do your research before you begin on the shidduch or during the shidduch or however you're going to do it. They generally have issues with a lot of people in their lives, their parents, their siblings, their workmates, their chavrusas. If somebody truly has an anger management issue, it's, it's not something that, that is usually hidden and it comes out. And the truth is that you want to try as hard as you can to get to that truth. And sometimes you really, I think it's kind of a good thing if the dates get stressed, you know, all the beautiful dates with like the candles and the, you know, beautiful chilled bottle of like, you know, great vino and a beautiful steak and all that. That's not really, I think, the best indicator of a date. That's an indicator of a good chef at a restaurant, which is lovely. I'm a foodie, but it's not an indicator of how that person is going to act. And if I can illustrate it with a very quick story, uh, there was a young man that not as a professional, I knew him just on a personal level. He were very close in his family. And uh, he was dating a girl from out of town and she came into the New York area to see him and she hadn't eaten all day and she flew in and then he picked her up and well, this girl suffered from migraines and not eating and not drinking enough when you have uh, migraines is, is gonna bring on a migraine. And they're driving around and driving around and she looked at him and she's like, I am gonna throw up. I have a horrible headache, I need to throw up. He's like, you're gonna throw up? And he's like, yeah. And so he was driving and driving. It's like, you know, 20 something year old kid and he found a gas station and he pulls the car into a gas station right away and he runs out and he asks the, the attendant, he's like, you need, I need a bathroom, I need a bathroom right now. And the guy's like, wait, don't have a bathroom and he told me this story and he said he looked at the attendant he said with all due respect sir I'm not trying to get personal but you're here for 10 hours a day you've got to have a bathroom like I don't believe you the guy's like yeah it's across the street at the hotel that's where we go in the meantime the girl who's really suffering got out of the car walked over to the side of the bushes and threw up I mean she had a horrible migraine and throwing up relieves the migraine she gets back in the car and she's like oh, I feel so much better he's like are you okay she's like I'm starving and so he's like, you, you, you want food? And she's like, yeah, I'm really hungry. And they went out and they got a meal. He went home and the story had, she had told her person and her parents and the shotgun and the matchmaker called him up and said, listen, you know, you wanted her to spill her guts to you. And she did. And he laughed and, and well, they're married with like eight kids and very happy. They had a stressful date. Do you want to throw up? I mean, I'm sorry, TMI. Do you want to throw up in front of your date? No. But this is the reality of the situation. And he exhibited kindness. He looked for a gas station. He jumped out to try to find the bathroom. He begged the guy to help him in a bathroom. He didn't know what to do. He, he you know, didn't have Imatrix with him. It's not, and she very calmly, that's what I mean by being shalom with yourself. And after they were married, I talked to him like, well, what were you thinking? She's like, I wasn't thinking anything. So I got a pounding headache. That is security and comfort. I have a headache. I have a migraine. I am a human being. So that date was stressful and they came through it well. Sometimes it's a good thing to have a little stress on the date. I think always you, I quote mimic real life, get a real sense of what it's like to be with each other. A hundred, which is what somebody said to me, try to see people in different circumstances, right? Again, hotel lobbies are lovely. Flowers are beautiful. It's clean. They vacuum every five minutes. It's gorgeous, but it's not giving you that real life. Seeing someone in real life, I think, is a really important component. There is a question in the chat, Devara, which I think is an important one, if we can address it. Just jump to it, sure. sure go ahead. And uh, somebody said, how do you, can you be a giver, work together, and staying away from falling into codependency? I love that question. Whoever asked that question, a big round of applause to you. Uh, somebody who did addiction, uh, that means I naturally deal in the subject of codependency. Maybe because I have a professional liability, I think you either have addiction or you have codependency, but that's a whole other topic of my professional liability. Codependency is not just being a giver. Codependency is when your entire value and worth is wrapped up in what other people think of you. 
that you can't throw up on the date because, oh my God, what is this person going to think? Or I'll never get another shit up again. Or, or you know, what's going to happen to me? That's codependent. Being a giver, which again comes to how full do you feel inside yourself? How much can you look in the mirror and be like, you know what? I'm special. Not in a narcissistic way. When people know that they are special and that Hashem loves them and they are unique, that would translate and should translate into wanting to give naturally to other people. And if not everybody likes you and they won't, we are okay with it. If the person you're dating says to you something negative and you crumple, call me. You can get the number from Rahama. Go ahead. But, so that's it, like how much, how full do we have to be? I mean, ideally full is, is ideal, but how full is not, or how not full is not enough? So I usually, I usually give that with an example and, and uh, I have a Hungarian background, I'm a foodie, so pardon me. So if, if your significant other is the cake, in your life, it's not good. You want your significant other to, to be kind of more like the icing or the cherry on the icing, meaning that person has to be there to work with you, to guide you, to help you, to become one with you. But if they are late or they have other interests and you are falling apart because you don't have anything else in your life, then we have a problem. That's the codependency. It means being happy and secure with who you are and truly understanding that you are a unique snowflake that Hashem made. There's only one of you. You are here for a purpose and a journey in your life. You are happy with that. And therefore you are happy that your spouse is also doing their purpose and their journey in life. And you come together to complete each other and go forth. What are some, besides anger, what are some traits that really are not conducive to marriage or not compatible with a healthy marriage? Not taking responsibility. Blame. Not taking responsibility is a really bad one. Blame. If you are with somebody who cannot take responsibility and who constantly looks to blame other people, that is a problem. Bring that person into therapy immediately if you wish to continue. Or if you're that person who does a lot of blaming, there's some work that you should do. A hundred percent. Anger in any form, whether it's what we call a volcano or an iceberg, explosive anger, no good. Shutting down and turtling in. And what do they call it today? I'm going to try and have everybody think like I'm 23. Ghosting. When they won't answer your texts, when they won't answer your messages. I mean, this generation, you, you guys have it really rough. In our generation, all you have to do is take the phone off the hook and get a busy signal and or just say there was trouble on the line and you could ignore somebody for like a week. I mean, we just really, it's much harder today because everybody can look at the phone and be like, oh my God, I sent that text at 8.32. They read it at 8.32 and they are not responding. So we have a lot more ways to know when people are ghosting you. If somebody cannot communicate and they refuse to come to the table to discuss real life, that is a red flag. If you don't like to communicate, if you get upset and someone says, Devorah, poor Devorah, I'm picking on her. Oh, Devorah, okay. Devorah, what's up? Mm. What, what, what is mm? Mm is what my two-year-old granddaughter, so I'm not 23 anymore if I have a two-year-old granddaughter. What, what is that? Mm. Nothing. Mm. And then you go around the apartment or the house and you're slamming cabinets so that the dishes are rattled. Are you okay? Mm. Okay. I don't want to talk about it. Slam, bam, go, boom. That is not communication. When we can come to the table, us or the people that we're interested and say, you know what? I am upset. That's okay. I am hurt. That's okay. I am frustrated. That's okay. I am so angry I could shriek that is okay. We want to express what is going on in us. So blaming, shaming, anybody who tries to shame you, big problem. Anybody who tries to control you, huge problem. I don't like what you're wearing. Are you going out like that? That is a problem. Or if you hear yourself saying those words to other that people, is talk, or am I ready? That so, is a problem that I don't believe that spouses should dress each other, right? If, if we are 
in with whatever religious orientation that we have agreed on. If I want to wear a purple top with a green skirt and pink shoes, that is my prerogative. And if my partner wants to wear a purple bow tie, the kavod gadol, enjoy it, right? Today, today I had a friend of mine call me. She's dating someone. She's like, he doesn't like my new shaitel. He doesn't like the color. He doesn't like the cut. I said, he doesn't have to wear it. It's not his shaitel. That's a joke. He doesn't wear a shaitel. He's a man. She's like, well, what should I do with it? I said, let's talk about this. I said, I'm going to call him because that is a level of control that I don't like. You can wear whatever shaitel you want. He doesn't have, now, is it nice if we could, but if not, you have the choice. 12-step program teaches us everyone stays in their lane. And I don't veer my lane over to, you must wear these shoes. And I most certainly don't want any, my partner to veer their car over into my lane saying, yeah, I don't like those boots because I own 70 pair of boots and I will wear maybe three an hour now that I work from home. And I like them. So that's a big one. Controlling anger in any form and anger can either be explosive or turning in and not communicate. You can be very angry and very silent and that will be, here's your clinical term for it, crazy making. That is crazy making. At least when someone yells, which is abusive, at least you know where you stand. People who come to my office whose partners ice them out or ghost them are absolutely frantic. They're frantic because they have absolutely no idea what's being thrown at them. And it is horrifying, completely horrifying. Okay, so let's, let's shift a little bit. Talk to people who have had, experience, had a difficult childhood, trauma, uh, neglect, or any of that. How, how do they know if they are ready enough or healthy enough or strong enough for a marriage? Well, if you've had any type of trauma, uh, in your life. And unfortunately, uh, not, I don't have to, people think social workers create issues. We don't, the issues are there. We, we don't, uh, yeah. First, of course, you call mask for a referral. That, that's like the number one thing that you do. Uh, first, you go to therapy. If you've had any trauma in your life, it, it would be very silly. It would be silly not to engage in, in a therapeutic process before you're ready to enter that because trauma is gonna put up defenses. And marriage with the emotional and the physical components of intimacy, it can sometimes trigger a lot of responses or a lot of emotion that has been buried in the brain for a long time. And that takes, again, intellectual honesty. When you think of that person, when you think of actually cohabitating, when you think of living with someone, how do you feel if you're feeling terror, if you're feeling fear and all of that is okay. But I think it's one of those kind of big signs um, that you should talk to someone and talk out your feelings. Looking at the relationships and, and let's uh, kind of give a round of applause to good old Dr. Freud, but looking at your relationships with your parents, which is psychodynamic theory, which I am a really big supporter of, the kind of trust, the type of attachment, the type of environment that you were raised in is usually an indicator. It's an indicator of how you're going to handle your adult interpersonal relationships. And that doesn't mean it's doomed, not at all. But a therapist is there to just give you a very safe, safe environment to talk about it without any judgment, to talk about what happened in your past, how it informs your present and can potentially inform your future. And so I think anybody that suffered any trauma, whether it was physical trauma, whether it was a parent or both parents that either raged or iced them out, or if it was a sexual trauma, I think it would be not wise to not engage, even if you think you're perfectly fine and well. And fine and well is not measured by, I have a job, I make much more money than my therapist, uh, I have stock options, I own two homes, and I'm okay. That's great. That doesn't equal that your emotional temperature is where it's supposed to be. So if you haven't engaged in that process, I think you should. I just think it's a really good idea. Well, there's always, there's always so many skills and benefits to be getting from a, from a therapist. 100%. So there's nothing, that's the stigma of therapy is something that Baruch Hashem is getting less, less than, and less. Thank God. Thank yes. God. 
Yes. And, Especially and now it, that we have so many good from therapists. 100%. And 100% and tons of organizations like MASK that have a cadre of really wonderful therapists that are available to help you. Look, we go to a yearly dentist, we go to a yearly eye doctor. It, it really, and I really do think, go to a therapist. Go, it, it's simply a safe place for you um, to kind of be there and, and talk about what's important to you in a confidential way. It's amazing. It's a great relationship. Uh, Ruhama and her organization have been doing this for 25 years. Uh, 100,000 people helped. They were among the first to kind of break that stigma. And it really has made a tremendous ripple effect in our community. You have an eye doctor, you have a dentist. I was madly in love with my dentist because he retired. I bawled like a baby, begged him, uh, really loved him. And um, you, you want to have a therapist. It's really a good thing in your life. So if someone grew up in a family with less than ideal shalom bias or whatever it is, and they know that they don't want to be like whichever parent it was, or both parents or whatever. And they know very clearly what they don't want, but it doesn't seem to be enough to know what you don't want. You actually have to replace it with better skills. Right, so I, I always say, Devorah and Rukham, I always say if my business was purely a cognitive business, I'd be out of business, right? We all know what we know. Uh, somehow knowing and our heart and our soul which is really not a big distance apart, uh, very many times there's a very big disconnect. Uh, the majority of people, the majority of people that I work with that are behaving in a bad way, they know they are, they know they are. And what, again, what a therapist will do is peel back those layers. Anger, for example, many times is a secondary emotion to fear. It's just a lot of fear that comes out in this really bad roar. Now, do I think that that's, that's okay then? No, it's not. But at least if we can produce an environment, we can be like, you are scared. When children come from less than nurturing environments, uh, their sense of safety, their sense of attachment is skewed. And nothing will, will push that button or trigger it more than an interpersonal relationship and parenthood. Parenthood because I have children and anybody who has children will tell you, I'll tell you the next big, you know, big secret of life. They don't always do what you want. I know, shocking, but they don't, yeah. right? And if you are not securely attached within yourself and have your own strong ego, that's gonna be a problem for you. And that's where a fight will be a problem for you because you will personalize it because your own sense of yourself is damaged. Let's talk about a different kind of question. Someone who's going through their own change, whether it's religiosity or changing their what they want to do with their life, how long should they have been in this change, in this new state, before they're ready to get married? A while. A while. Uh, if you have grown up, let's say, particularly insular all your life, and now you have um, decided that you want absolutely nothing to do with it and you're completely in a different way, I suggest settling into a new space and a new normalcy. Uh, and for a while, I mean a good year or two or, or, or more to, to know that that's what you want. Um, people who make great shifts in their life, uh, there are times when those shifts have been there for a while and then they just get the courage to do it. And it goes the opposite way also. Uh, if you were completely not, uh, not insular and very secular, and all of a sudden you, you have become the most uber religious person, I would also advise settling into that lifestyle before you add the variable and the stress of another individual. Anything that goes extreme needs time to normalize, anything. And what if it's not extreme, it's just a, a few notches or experimenting with it, whether it's with clothing or Friends or but, but, then, but then experimenting is a variable that's on a scale. And where is that scale going to end up? Unless, of course, you're perfectly honest with the person that you're dating. You're like, I'm not quite sure where I'm going to end up. I could end up, you know, Hasidish to the max and, and whatever. Or I could end up, uh, you know, not religious. And if the person is okay with that, then, then great. But I, that's what I think it's better to kind of be at a, a more steady place in your life because marriage is a variable and you're adding a big variable into your own personal mix and how well can that mix sustain that variable? If you wanna just get married and do your own thing, 
I'm not, what, what, then what's the marriage about? Marriage again is relational. It's a relationship where you communicate different things. There was a question in here uh, in the chat about a career. Well, people are gonna have careers and people are gonna have different career goals. Nothing is off the table as long as you can have an open, honest disagreement and an open, honest disagreement that leads to resolution. The couples I worry about the most are the ones that come in and say, we've been married for 20, 30, 17, 25, whatever years, we've never fought. That is a big problem. Like That is a problem. We have never had one fight. 20 years, really? Not one, nope, not one. That's a problem. Well, why is that a problem? Because either there's a very bad power differential and one person is afraid to fight, right? Or they don't care enough to fight. And so either way, I think you have an issue. People will argue. There is a theory that is called conflict theory. We are in conflict from the moment we are born until 120. A baby wants to stay up all night, thinks three o'clock in the morning is a jolly time to get up and play. And parents want to have that baby get more on a schedule. Uh, my professor explained this and, and he was right. You, before COVID, you're driving and you're going down towards the tunnel or the bridge. Well, you've got eight lanes of traffic converging into two at the Lincoln Tunnel. That's a conflict, right? You're not just driving and going at, at 7.30 in the morning. You are competing with thousands of cars. That's conflict. You walk down New York City, Fifth Avenue and 34th Street pre-COVID, you can't walk a straight line. There's the guy with the clothing rack. There's the mother with the double stroller. There's the businessman with his briefcase. There's the guy biking and delivering food. You've got to weave all that. So you kind of, you don't even notice it. You're weaving, dodging, going back, stepping forward. That's called conflict. So as therapists, we don't say avoid conflict. No, you're going to have conflict. How do you have conflict? How do you have conflict? You scream and yell and ghost each other and throw a vase across the table. We are not having good conflict. You sit down and you listen and you reflectively listen and you make yourselves a nice cup of tea and you talk about it and what's important for me and what's important for you. And then you mediate, which means everybody gets something, but nobody gets a hundred percent. That's mediation. Now you're resolving conflict. That's going to go anything from, do we purchase a house? Do we stay renting? Which yeshiva do we put the kids in? What are we doing about my career move? I don't want your mother coming here again for Shabbos. She drives me crazy. You know, why is the milk sour in the fridge? Everything, big and small. How does the conflict get resolved? And those can all happen in one day, by the way. Yeshiva, <laughs> career move, sour milk, mother coming for Shabbos, baby crying, ear infection. That can all happen on a typical Tuesday. And it will. Another question. Moving from an addiction or a really bad habit, how long should that have been resolved? Okay. Uh, now you're hitting what, what I like. Rahama, you ready? Here we go. Here's Rahama's going to like, here's the addiction. I, I, I actually am ready. And I'm glad you brought that up because I'd like you also to touch <laughs> on the importance of honesty before you get married Absolutely. about where you're up to in your addiction Absolutely. and recovery. Absolutely. Okay. So everybody go get a cup of tea. Here's the seven hour answer. Are you ready? All right. I've got the 200 page dissertation to talk about this topic. Boom. Okay. Addiction is a disease. It's not a moral failing. It's not a taiva. It's not, you're a bad person. It is a brain disease. Uh, Ruhama, myself, we, literally stand up on podiums, on milk crates, on shopping carts to kind of get this message out to anybody who cares to listen. It is a brain disease. It is a brain disease that affects more Americans than heart disease, cancer, and diabetes combined and costs this country $740 billion per year. It's there. Our community has addiction. Do you know why? Because we are human beings. That's why. And human beings have addiction. Addiction has been around since the Bible. The first known recorded alcoholic in the Torah was Noah. And it didn't end too well for him either. And so as long as there's been a grape 
And as long as there's been a cocoa leaf and as long as there's been food and as long as there's been the dynamic between love partners, there's gonna be addiction. So we have it. It is patently, importantly, ridiculously important to be honest if you have an addiction. You do. If you have an addiction, that's fine. If you are in recovery, conventional wisdom and any therapist will tell you not to even think of entering an interpersonal relationship for the first year and a half or two of recovery. Ruhama and I both know countless people who fall in love in rehab. Hundreds. Thousands of thousands. people fall in love in rehab and they break up in the parking lot as soon as they can't find their car keys. Rehab is a phenomenal, wonderful bubble. Your meals are served, laundry is there, there's a therapist to talk to 24 seven, there's a spiritual leader to talk to 24 seven, you're there to work on yourself. And that is why you should not be in an interpersonal relationship. Being sober is staying away from the chemical or the drug or the behavior that causes your brain to trip and not be able to control itself. Being in recovery is a lifestyle. And that lifestyle takes early recovery. Good thing nobody can throw anything at me. Early recovery is three to five years. Not days, not weeks, not months, three to five years. Have I seen people get married before three to five years? Yes. If you don't have a minimum of a year and a half to two and a half years of recovery, Again, because recovery is to build up an ego, to build up an individual that has stopped developing in that way from the moment the addiction took place, which is most notably in your teen years. And again, you could be making zillions of dollars. Emotionally, you're still at the age of a 12 or a 13 or a 14 year old. They don't make the best partners. They're too insecure. They're too shame-based. They're not secure within themselves. So if you are in recovery, I don't suggest getting into an interpersonal relationship before you've at least worked with a sponsor, completed all 12 steps, and you have at least two years under your belt. You just need that time. First of all, it takes at least a year for the chemical changes to come through the brain. That includes sleep disturbances, for the brain to, to dry out, to get rid of the effects of the opiates, of the benzos, even of the behavioral addictions. Behavioral addictions are shown to change the chemistry of the brain. The brain, which is the most marvelous organ that we have, right? It lets you do everything, everything, talk, drink my tea, dance, sing, everything, heals very slowly. And recovery, early, early recovery, is a few years and early recovery recovery in general is a should always is a right it's a lifetime but it should always include 12-step meetings and a sponsor correct, correct. yeah yeah uh, when you you mentioned mostly about chemical depend uh, chemical addictions but we're talking about behavioral addictions or uh, such as pornography now we're not talking about an addiction, but now we're not talking about an addiction. Now we're talking about someone who has experimented, spent some time in pornography. Does that have to be shared? What is your perspective? If you're going to start your marriage out on a lie, if that's the foundation that you want for your marriage, that's okay. I mean, people do lie to each other, but uh, that's, that's a pretty big one to, to not bring to the table. Uh, it's going to come out. It's going to come out. And I would absolutely much rather get with somebody who tells me what the issue is. I deal with people with addiction every day, all day, eight hours a day, six days a week. I, I believe I am one of, I don't believe that everybody who's married to somebody with an addiction should get divorced, uh, quite frankly, because nobody would be married. It's <laughs> kind of like you really went, but um, bump. Uh, and that's really kind of the truth. So people who are, uh, 
involved with people with addiction can have absolutely beautiful lives, even if the addiction is at the point where it is not in, if it's in a relapse or if it's in an active stage, because that's where we have the Anon programs, Asanon, Al-Anon, Naranon, for the family members and the spouse. And as long as you have that person, that partner working their side of the street or their program, they're going to be okay. They are. So it is possible. What is considered an addiction? Any either behavior, uh, behavior could be food, gambling, sex, shopping, anger, or chemical, alcohol, weed, uh, benzos, valium, meth, coke, anything like that, uh, that the person cannot control the amount that they take and that it interferes with their family, with their recreation, with their livelihood, with their legal involvement, there's a checklist and it goes on a continuum from abuse to dependence. So if someone has some sort of abuse level, not kind of dependence level of pornography, for example, because this question came out in several, from several people in different forms. Uh, is it something that they should not be involved in at all before getting married? Or I mean, of course they shouldn't, but should they have stopped six months, a year, three years? Or... Behavioral addiction is the same thing as a chemical addiction. Get into recovery, work the steps, get a sponsor, uh, learn how to, you know, marriage is wonderful. I'm definitely a very marriage-minded person. I'm a hopeless, hopeless romance addict. I, I think it's the best thing in the world. But, but it's also a huge variable and a huge psychosocial stressor. And people who have the disease of addiction and they are not very steeped in their recovery or their recovery is not strong, they cannot handle Pressure is not good for them. Pressure causes them to relapse. Pressure causes them to use. And what we teach is how to get out and have a job and have the baby spit up on your suit and have your car get flat and be able to take the principles of recovery and use that in your life instead of having a morning like that and going into your drawer and starting to down a fifth of vodka, which is what they would do when they have the addiction. So we, it, we don't want to take people in recovery and stick them on top of a mountain and say, you know what, you just stare at the sun all day and, and you'll be fine, no pressure. Not at all. We want people to be able to join, produce and integrate themselves into society with the tools of recovery and working a program every single day. And they do. And they are wildly successful and wonderful people, bright, talented, creative, fabulous. So if you're asking me, should you marry somebody with an addiction? You can just know exactly what it is and what you need to do in that equation. And can we just speak a bit, a minute about how you are not going to change them when they get married? A hundred percent. No. First of all, you don't change anybody. If you're getting married to the, that was, that's a great point. Thank you, Rahama. If you're getting married to change the person, run. No, do not even think of it for a minute. Everything from his yucky purple bow tie that you hate to the fact that he likes to eat, you know, orange juice and pickles. If you think you're going to change any of that, you are changing nothing. And in addiction, which is a great thing to take to any relationship, we talk about the three C's. The four C's is what you talk about when you pick that ring, right? Cut, cow, uh, carrot, color, Quality, uh, clarity. clarity, thank you. There you go. You got to have clarity, both in mind and in diamond. Thank you, Devora. But the three C's is what we talk about in addiction. And those three C's are you did not cause this, you will not control this, and you will not cure this. And that is a classic sign of codependency. When you think you are going to be the one to cure the addict, to get them to be sober because your love will cure them all. If you think that for even a millisecond, pick up the phone now, call Rahama, get a referral and get into therapy. That is a bad thought because you will not, you will not. And I work with codependent spouses all the time. They are exhausting themselves, dumping alcohol down the sink, schlepping bottles to the dumpster in the middle of the night, going through their husband's or their wife's pockets to look for fentanyl, getting rid of all the cheese doodles and yo-yos and ho-hos and putting fresh organic salmon and brown rice in the fridge. And you know what? Their spouses are still doing whatever they do. Get away from being the rescuer. You wanna rescue someone? Look in the mirror. That is a beautiful person to rescue. Right. So there's there's a thought. 
On one of the questions, um, they requested you give the definition of codependency. Uh, codependency is when you as an individual base your worth on the opinion and the feelings of others. So if somebody tells me they don't like me, my response is, that's okay. I, I know people don't like me. That's fine. If you are a codependent individual and somebody doesn't like you, and that really bothers you to the point where you just don't think you have worth, then that's a problem. There is a wonderful book that I think everybody should read, and that's called Codependent No More, Melody Beattie. It is the Bible of codependency. Uh, codependent people also very much like to control other people, right? They're actually very similar to people with addiction. They are also called the co-addicts. And Hashem in his absolute wisdom will always match up somebody with addiction with a codependent. It, it's just incredible. I've worked with couples who have had a 30 second for show. One of them is an addict and one of them is a codependent. It, it's just, it's literally a miracle from God. I mean, it's, it's a miracle. It's like, how did the only God could put that together like that? They don't even know each other. And the co the addict has an addiction to a substance or a behavior and the codependent or the co-addict is addicted to the addict. What they want, what they say, what they feel, they are not their own individual. And they are highly, highly sensitive, just like the person with the addiction. But the person with the addiction kind of drowns their feeling and their emotion in the behavior of the substance. And the codependent or the co-addict drowns themselves in their obsessive need to control and make the person with the addiction what they want and others around them, their children, their family members, whoever comes in contact with them. Um, Debbie, one of the questions on the chat is also about you bringing up the ego part and somebody's questioning how that comes about. If you could explain more, please. So an ego, if, if you're looking at that as an ego, is like, I have a huge ego and I'm, I'm like a balgiver. I'm not a good person. That's not what we mean. The ego is kind of what we call the sense of self, right? And, and that, again, comes to us from uh, Freudian psychodynamic. The ego is how you form you, you, your personality. How do you feel about you? Having a strong ego and a healthy ego really means that you want to be a giver. You want to make people happy. You want to make people smile. You, you like people. You want to be part of society. You enjoy being part of a group. You like going into shul and giving everybody shalom aleichem and davening with, with the kahil and doing that. It's not a bad thing. When people have overinflated senses of self and they don't use it for kindness or for love or for giving, that is when the ego can be damaged going the other way when someone's ego is so poor that they don't have a sense of self. Well, that is when you can get codependency, you can get anger, you can get behaviors that are maladaptive. So the ego, you can kind of look at it as a conglomeration of what your, your personality, your uniqueness is. And everyone has a different, different personality and a different ego. Uh, Debbie, uh, shifting a little bit, uh, this uh, someone writes that she's in her early 20s and she's feeling pressured by, I'm going to say by family and, and society to get married, but she doesn't, she doesn't feel ready. But of course, marriage is something she wants eventually. How does she know if the other people are saying to get married is a good thing or she should go trust her own okay. whatever okay. she's feeling? All right, I'm gonna back that up with another question that I read, which is like, how do I actually know that I wanna get married? And for the first one, I'm gonna kind of say, if you kind of took away everything that's associated with the marriage, the engagement ring, the bracelet, the wedding, the dress, the two new shaitals, the candlesticks, the furniture, the, the everything that, that marriage, which is wonderful, kind of brings, if all of that would not be present, would you still want to spend your life? If, if I said to you, you can get married tomorrow, there's no money, pick something from your closet, you know, you'll get a, a ring for the chuppah, 
we'll probably make like some chicken and rice. You'll invite a couple friends and we'll have a, you know, a meal. You still want to marry that person, right? Are you getting married to the person for the person or for the title and the trappings? I think is one way that is really important. Uh, marriage is glamorous. The wedding industry is a beautiful industry and it's all beauty. It's wonderful. Gowns and the makeup and the music. It's, it's just so intoxicating. It's, it's really fantastic. But at the end of all that, it is you and the person together. Whether it's a leather couch and great furniture or you're sitting on the floor and just kind of getting to know each other. It's still you and that person. And so you need to kind of ask yourself that question. If you don't feel like you're ready to get married, that would be something that if you're getting a lot of pressure, that would actually be a good question to go and talk to with a therapist, right? There is normal amounts of, let's say some fear in getting married. It is a brand new experience. It's a brand new thing. But the notion of really liking that person and the notion of connecting and bonding with that person, many times is going to override or should override that fear. If you're having anxiety, if you're in your early 20s, God willing, you can have children for the next 20 years. Uh, women today have babies through their 40s easily, easily. So fertility is important. But again, if you would get married and you weren't going to have children, you still want to marry that person because infertility is also a reality of life. Do you want to be with the human being that is standing before you? I guess the question is if she hasn't met anyone, she doesn't want to start dating. So she, the pressure to start dating, whether it's societal or from family or, and how does she know if they're right telling her that she's something she will grow into or she wants more time? You know, as a therapist, I would say, trust your gut, listen to the voice inside of you and, and kind of be like, there's something that's holding me back here. And then I would say, go find somebody that you can relate to and that you can form a relationship with to kind of figure that out, right? Because there's two uh, kind of two sides to this coin. People do want to be partnered up. It is a natural thing to, to want to have a partner in life and, and be with a partner. And we, we try to achieve that. If the fear of that is so overwhelming, then that, that could be something that you do want to talk out with somebody who is a professional. And you can. And you can usually flush that out. And then there's a, anxiety, again, is not a bad thing. We can have anxiety over things and we can get through our anxious moments and still do what we need to do. Something that's an important topic like marriage, if you're kind of like, I can't do this, this is really not for me. Okay, admit it, own it, no problem. Find someone that you can talk to so that in whatever time it takes, you will then feel that you are more prepared and more ready to kind of get into that part of your life. So Debbie, this question came in. If I have a chronic anxiety, uh, wouldn't it be a burden to my husband? I guess, uh, basically, I guess she's asking, can an anxious person get married? Uh, an anxious person can get married. Chronic anxiety is first and foremost, probably a burden to yourself. That is a very difficult state to live in if you are chronically anxious or chronically depressed or, or chronically anything. And the first and foremost thing, again, is I deserve to feel as good as I can. I deserve to feel as good as I can so that I can not only function, but that I can enjoy the life that Hashem has given me. And that is really why we tell people to go to therapy. The therapy uh, is not because you're a victim, not at all. We work with strength. So therapy is because you want to empower what the strengths you already have and because everybody deserves to feel good. And living with chronic anxiety or chronic depression really doesn't feel good. So I think that's the way we kind of first and foremost look at it. Uh, being a burden, we are never a burden to our partner. Life, 12-step concept, we accept life on life's terms. Life, unfortunately, can come with illness. It can come with financial difficulty. Life does not come without conflict and without hardship. It doesn't. Can we be together and mitigate both the good times and the bad? But we're not a burden. And if somebody makes you think that they're a burden, that is another problem. Again, we're saying she probably hasn't met them yet, met him yet. She doesn't know if she should go start dating at all. I think you should manage your anxiety so that you should feel good about yourself. Why go into a situation when you're not feeling 100% who you can be? 
the marriage isn't going to fix it. Marriage is not a fix. It's not a Band-Aid and it's not a pill. It is coming into it as shalem and whole as you can to introduce another person and their needs and wants into your life and meld them together. Dr. Debbie, everybody has something. You know, one person may have diabetes and the next one may have anxiety. So we, we need to realize that everyone comes to the table with Correct. something. Correct. The more honest you are in talking about these things, including mental health, the less of the struggles you're going to have when you get married and find out about Correct. it in a negative behavior way. Correct. Correct. There is a little bit of a misnomer, I believe, in many circles that we have to marry perfection. Well, good luck. And when you find it, please call me immediately because I definitely want to see what that looks like. I am not perfect. Nobody in my family is perfect. And that's not an expectation, right? People wear glasses and they have dental issues and they have diabetes and they have back problems and they have anxiety and OCD. Uh, Ashkenazi Jews, you know, yay for us. Uh, we have been known now, it is scientifically proven that anxiety, depression, and OCD, we have much higher rates, right? Why? Yeah. 6,000 years of, of gullus and persecution, it's going to go somewhere. It's, it's got to go somewhere. On the other hand, we are an incredibly giving, hardworking, industrious, charitable, loving, wonderful, strong people. So let's go to acceptance. Everybody's going to have a something. Can you live comfortably with whatever that something is. And if that doesn't sound romantic, it is. <laughs> it actually is. Because it's really accepting the person on their terms. And that is what you want from them. And that's truly what it's about. And with COVID, it has brought a lot of anxiety and depression to the surface. Okay. If you can quarantine with your partner effectively, I'd say you guys are really doing well. There has been, yeah, no, seriously, I, I've heard from people, right? I worked with a couple once and, and they were having a tough time during, during COVID because they really were together for very, very, very many hours. And so I employed what I call duct tape therapy, which didn't mean wrap your partner in duct tape. That's not what it was about. But they lived in small quarters. And I said, pretend you're 10 years old and you're back sharing a room with your you know, sibling and just divide the apartment. You work here and I work here and you get to go to the kitchen these hours and I go to the kitchen those hours and then we meet up again at seven o'clock in the evening like normal. And it worked. They were just way too on top of each other. And that doesn't mean they don't love each other. It means that they each needed some personal space, some breathing room, somewhere that they could do their work quietly. And that is not the sign of a bad marriage. That is a sign of a good marriage. You need your friends. You need your job, you need your rav, your gemara shir, your dancing, simcha dancing on Thursday night, you're going to the grocery store, you're online shopping for Zara boots on sale. You need it all. And a partner will accept you and you accept them for the everything. Okay, someone wrote about uh, having trust issues. Uh, she had abandonment issues after growing up in a dysfunctional home. It's hard for me to fully trust and commit to somebody. I usually ended up after end up in the dating after four dates. Um, how do I get myself to the chuppah? Therapy. Therapy. March to a therapist. Whoever you start to date, include them in that therapeutic process. Be honest. I want to be able to trust you. I have not learned that from my background. Please work with me. Let us go to therapy. You need therapy. That's not. And you're bringing up therapy, which is so important, especially premarital therapy, but that's a whole nother class. We'll do that. Um, we'll do that some other time. Right. But I just do want to mention that when you pick a therapist, a lot goes into picking one. Yes. Don't just call a neighbor and say, oh, so who did your daughter go to? Or who did your neighbor go, you know, the other neighbor go to? That's not the way to pick a therapist. So give us a call. You can call anonymously and we will help you pick a therapist that's right for you and your situation. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of 100% therapy. I cannot espouse enough 
how important it is. Uh, as we've mentioned in the program, the stigma in our community is really lessening. Thank Hashem and thank Ruhama and her program uh, that it really now is out in the open. Therapy will allow you to come in and, and really honestly to bring your potential partner so you can have honest, safe discussions. If you walk into a marriage with abandonment and trust issues, the first time that guy is three minutes late, you're gonna have a meltdown because it's going to bring it up. Well, everything that you think has lain buried and, and not there will bubble to the surface with such an intensity and ferocity, it's gonna shock you. Much better to date longer, much better to date longer. Go for therapy together. A good therapist can help you flush out the problems probably very quickly, a couple of sessions, and then lay out a plan. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't get married, but lay out a plan as to what goals you're gonna work on individually and together to have it be successful. And that's, that's a nice way to end. This was a very productive call. We have several questions about that are more related to what to share during dating. And we'll get to that at another, another talk. Um, um, just look, I'm just skimming through them all. Many of them are in that topic. A few of them were halacha questions, which we, Debbie is not a rabbi, so we're not even going to bring not those up. <laughs> not, not, not yet. Uh, but those, those, those who ask any sort of questions about halacha, please, uh, you did send it anonymously. So if you want us to answer those to you privately, please give us your contact information. Okay. Uh, we do have several other pieces, uh, talks on preparing for marriage on the website. That's adayad.org, A-D-A-I-A-D.org. And uh, several times uh, we spoke about the importance of a therapist. Rechama at uh, Mass can help you find uh, the right therapist, as we mentioned. The recording will be available on our website. It should be up by about tomorrow. That's be at adayad.org slash past dash events. Uh, questions about free therapy. Mm, uh, call Matt, call Matt, 718-758-0400, and we will talk to you about what's available. Okay, let me just see any final, final. Everything is very, very confidential. Okay, uh, Hama, could you say the number one more time? I'll type it in the chat. Yes, yeah. 718-758-0400. All right. Okay, so thank you all for joining. If you have any other questions, you can definitely send it to us anonymously or to, or to our website at info at adayad.org or anonymously like you saw on the flyer. Uh, it's adayad.org slash ask-anonymous-question or we could reach out to MASK at that phone number or at their website, info, sorry. Mask, that, info at maskparents.org. To maskparents.org. Okay, so thank you all and good night. Thank you, Debbie, so much for. Thank you. This is a really an honor. Topic. And, uh, if I can be helpful in any way, my pleasure. It's a pleasure to work with Yuhama and with you, Devora, and I hope that we can do this again. It would be a tremendous honor. Thank you. Thank you. Right, Devora, thank you again. Thank you, Dr. Rackman. Anytime. Anytime. Have a good night. Take care. Bye bye. Good night. All right.